Hello and welcome to episode five of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And today we are honing in on Chinese technology and innovation. The world is starting to wake up to China's technological prowess. It wasn't so long ago that the country was regarded just as a manufacturer of finished goods and certainly when it came to technology as an imitator rather than an innovator. But visit Shanghai today and most of your day-to-day -day activity will be performed digitally, whether you're ordering your groceries, paying your bills, communicating with friends and families, all online activities that we have been getting used to uh, during lockdown, but which for Chinese urbanites has long been a way of life. Look at the stock market and it's clear to see the Chinese corporate sector is now as dominated by large technology platforms as we see in the US. From big data to e-commerce and from online payments to online medical consultations, Chinese companies find themselves now at the cutting edge of technology. So how should investors think about these digital pioneers in the context of the country's broader economic development? And what can it tell us about where China is heading in the near and in the long-term future? To guide me through this topic, I'm joined on the line from Hong Kong by portfolio managers Raymond Ma and Tina Tian. And on the phone from London, we have senior technology analyst Johnny Seng. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hi. Tina, um, let me come to you first. Uh, Chinese internet companies have obviously been a key focus of yours. But put simply, what differentiates the way that they operate compared to global peers? Sure. To me, one key difference is really, if you look at China versus, I guess, the developed world, there's overall a general underdevelopment in China, right? If you look at you know, we actually, before the mobile payment came into place, there was not much uh, credit cards, right? People so directly bypass credit cards to mobile payment and people bypass PC for mobile phones. And also, I mean, the retail, offline retail in infrastructure was underdeveloped. So I guess the, the Chinese internet players in China, they really benefited from this underdevelopment and, and the adoption of internet services have really gone fast in China. I think that's a key thing kind of differentiating the Chinese internet players. So that's really interesting that they, they've been able to enter services and spaces that some of their global peers haven't. Um, you know, Raymond, you're an expert on some of the bigger themes that we see in technology, whether that's automation, big data, cloud computing. Very briefly, where do you see China developing some of its strongest capabilities? Yeah, I think in this period, there'll be big data. In my view, if we look at China's journey of data, the first period is personal digital space. And the second phase is uh, the public space. In China, the public space digitalization, in my view, is much well developed compared to even compared to the developed world right now. And the third phase, which thanks to 5G, it will be industrialization when uh, manufacturing industries, they all use the data and to produce automatically. Thanks, Raymond. So, and obviously there are a lot of uh, topics which we're going to dive into in more detail as we go through the episode. 
But where I, where I really want to start our conversation today is really around this shift, this repositioning of uh, China, uh, I guess, from uh, certainly being perceived as a laggard uh, globally to now uh, potentially looking at as, as a leader from a technology perspective. And Johnny, maybe turning to you, I'm really interested in this whole concept of this relationship between innovation and, and the perception of uh, China as an innovator and really how we look at it with respect to its international reputation. This shouldn't just be seen as a technology race. This is a race between nation states, between China and the US, China and the West. And the, the roots of this actually lie back in the 19th century because China, having been for thousands of years the technology leader, these guys invented gunpowder, printing, compasses, uh, paper. Um, in the 19th century, you know, they lost out big time to Western powers and colonization. They lost the opium wars to Britain, which had an army, you know, a 20th of their size because the Brit Britain had better technology. Britain had advanced weaponry. Britain had steam-powered, ironclad battleships, and China didn't. And, and, and so for China, they went from being the leader to the laggard. That situation persisted for more than 100 years, the kind of century of national humiliation. And now we come to the 21st century, and for China, they see the opportunity to become the leader again um, and to use not only their material resources, but to drive the intellectual property and engineering prowess to start to become the country which influences the world in 5G, in big data, in artificial intelligence. Um, and I think from my point of view as a technology analyst, the, the battlefield I see this today most clearly is in 5G. Um, the, 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 the kind of story of the last 10 years has been America won the race to the smartphone, America won the race to 4G, and the world was built on American standards, iPhone, Google, Android. Um, China is determined now with national champions such as Huawei to make sure they lead on the road to 5G. Uh, and you see Huawei having originally started off as a laggard, make some of the best handsets and the most sophisticated 5G base stations. And then this plays into the world of politics um, because you, know, you see this very clearly that when countries have to decide whether to let Huawei build their 5G networks, it becomes a choice of whether to let you know, Donald Trump or Xi Jinping be your friend. So in the UK at the moment, we're having a debate, should Huawei be allowed to build our 5G networks? And does Britain want to have a free trade deal with America? Those are mutually incompatible alternatives. In Italy, you see they've kind of openly signed an agreement to let Huawei come into their 5G networks. And, and that is a public affirmation of who their friends are in the world. And, and Tina, if I can sort of bring you a little bit back to one of the things that you touched on. You know, you talked about how there are certain services that, that the technology companies in China are able to offer because of the broader immaturity of the economy. Can you just give us a sense of how comprehensive are the services that some of the internet platforms are able to deliver? In China, there are two super apps. So we have WeChat and Alipay. So basically, if you think about you know, one person for the whole day, all the requests, all, all the daily necessities can all be met by just staying within that super app be it chatting with your friends, shopping, you know, paying your utilities, booking tickets, reserving tables, and even purchasing mutual funds, all can be completed within that one super app. 
and it's still expanding, right? During the, the, the pandemic, we are actually seeing people having the telemedicine online consultation with the doctors and even receiving the consumption e-vouchers from the super apps. So it's, it's very comprehensive coverage of all the things that you could possibly imagine in your life. Raymond, what do you think makes this possible? I mean, are we also learning something here about the digital infrastructure in China? Is that one of the key enablers of these super apps? Yes, definitely. Uh, I believe China's 4G network is the widest penetrated uh, equipment in, in China compared to all the world. So in that case, the signal or the penetration there is super. And China's mobile phone penetration also pretty high. And I think for the young generation, we call Generation Z, the penetration of mobile phone possibly 95%. And uh, like uh, Tina said, as a WeChat and Alipay, you are talking about 700, 800, 900 million users. So this all together give China a very big market. I think super apps also shows where China has moved ahead of America. In the US, you don't have super apps. Uh, and part of this, again, is the historical background here that, as Tina said at the start, China's com internet companies benefited because there weren't incumbents in payments in retail. In America, it's very different. In America, there's always been strong incumbents in banking, in retail. So you saw you develop these kind of, uh, kind of category killer apps, Google in search, Amazon in e-commerce, Facebook in social, companies which went very deep into the one area they could do without kind of trampling on the incumbents' toes. But this meant that the, the, the American internet companies are not broad in the way the Chinese ones are because they not, could, could not create the super apps without uh, trampling on a bunch of incumbents, which was just not possible in the foundational years of the internet revolution. And, and I'm also really interested in the point that Raymond raised earlier around data as, as, a, as a competitive advantage and the importance of big data. And interesting, when we look at the US, one of the things that I'm increasingly reading about is, I guess, the risk of regulation increasing for some of those large tech platforms. The idea of the responsibility of the algorithms. They are the, they are the new monopolies. Do you see the same regulatory environment emerging in China? Or is there a different way that those companies are perceived by, by the government? Yeah, first of all, I would say uh, Chinese people compared to Western people, one key difference is uh, Chinese people, they are less sensitive to privacy as well as uh, data privacy. So this, I think, is one fundamental uh, difference. Actually, I would say they trade this kind of privacy for what? For convenience. If they can get really good convenience, okay, I, I, I can give up a little bit of privacy for that. So this is one fundamental difference. But secondly, I would say Chinese government definitely are more, more likely to tighten the, the control or will not have companies to misuse on those kind of things. One to two years before, we have heard a few cases that some companies try to sell the data and actually those companies crack down and those management, senior manager are in jail. So for that part, data protection against criminal actually is pretty, pretty okay in China. But, but Chinese, I, I, I will say, go back to the first point that uh, Chinese like to give up some digital privacy for the convenience in their real life.
Tina, I just want to get a sense from you as to how big an impact do you think that the pandemic has had on internet companies, e-commerce, the digital environment more broadly? So I guess, you know, a few structural changes are I'm observing from this whole pandemic. Uh, one is really we are seeing increasing online presence for a lot of offline merchants and service providers. And we, we are actually, you know, during the pandemic, we're seeing new uh, use cases whereby, you know, we see a lot of live streaming uh, e-commerce, right? So the offline um, merchants are really shifting from in-store to, to online via live streaming, interacting with, with the consumers. And and we, we're seeing, you know, brands really building their online presence, um, not just via the e-commerce platform, also via WeChat, which is a more direct engagement with the customers. Secondly, we should see an acceleration in the digitalization of the businesses. So think about you know automation or uh, the business using um, software, SaaS, you know all these tools to really optimize uh, their process to improve efficiency. Before the pandemic, people kind of had this inertia, right? You don't have the social distancing, all these, all these bottlenecks. But now it becomes more natural for a lot of business to really pull forward that digitalization. Um, and, and thirdly, I would say naturally because of the social distancing, people are spending a lot more online. It's not a temporary boost of the online t- time spend. We actually see people... You know, not just time spent, also in terms of the user base, um, the kind of people that, you know, the online entertainment are attracting is actually broader than what we, we are seeing before the pandemic. And Johnny, we talked about how this offline to online or what we call O to O transition, you know, was already kind of well ingrained in, in China. So what, what, again, from your perspective, what additional are we, are we seeing in terms of that, that transition? Consumer activity was already switching um, from, from offline to online in areas, mainly which went through your smartphones. So watching videos, sending messages, social media, simple stuff. Um, what COVID does, and particularly the lockdown does, is bring a bunch of activity which didn't take place in the smartphone into the online world. So things like um, exercise, you know, doing physical exercise, doing exercise videos, you know, using exercise equipment. Um, things like um, meetings, you know, in-person meetings are clearly not happening and everybody is using video conferencing platforms to do that instead. And obviously one of the key things that we're, we're looking at really is, is also the provision of, of, of healthcare and health services uh, digitally. And to hear a little bit more about China's healthcare sector and how some of the associated technology has been deployed to manage uh, coronavirus and how the pandemic uh, might change that industry in the long term. Our Asia editor, Neil Goff, caught up with investment analyst Yuan Lin Lang to discuss. Yuan Lin, you cover uh, the healthcare sector in China, is yes, that right? Yes. What have you been seeing kind of throughout this outbreak in terms of how is the sector adapting and reacting to manage the virus? Yeah, we've seen tremendous efforts actually from many companies. Uh, who wants to help to develop therapeutics or vaccines uh, as fast as possible. For example, uh, you know, for the vaccine development, uh, in China right now we have three companies entered into human trials. 
and then many companies in preclinical trials now. And we also see companies joining hands with uh, academics to uh, help to develop the vaccine as, uh, as fast as possible. And I, I've uh, had a conversation with the most advanced company, and then they uh, have done the phase one. Uh, you know, the enrollment has been very, very fast. There is a lot of foreign volunteers. And uh, also they, they started phase two for now, and then they probably will announce results in May or in June. So that's already very, very fast considering with the traditional vaccine development. Interesting. So three companies already doing human trials, so that's pretty yes. far along. Yes. Uh, and that's for the vaccine. But what about in terms of other general treatments right. or even kind of like uh, more basic testing? Right. You know, a lack yeah. of test kits yeah. was a big yeah, problem exactly. yeah, uh, early yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. How have the, the, the sector been able to address that? China had some uh, bottleneck at the initial stage of the outbreak there was not enough tests approved and then there are not enough manpower to be able to conduct the tests. But then the authorities has been accelerating the approval and then the capacity ramping uh, up quickly as well. So the bottleneck has been solved just in you know one week or two weeks. We've already reached a, a very uh, abundant supply for the testing. Is there also overseas demand? I mean, are they exporting test kits or even like surgical masks and basic? Yes, like they this, live, uh, you know, yeah, China has been exporting a lot. Um, you know, as you mentioned, PPE, like uh, the protective uh, gear and then surgical masks, uh, as well as diagnostic testing. Uh, we've seen uh, antibody testing exported and PCR testing exported. You and I are both wearing masks today, and I yeah. guess there's a strong chance that these are probably made in China as well. Yeah, um, I think yeah. so, yeah, yeah. Kind of stepping back and looking more at the long term, are there ways that you see that this outbreak and the global pandemic has changed the sector in China? So first of all, I think there will be an increasing investment in China healthcare sector from the government. And then because, uh, because of this pandemic, I think the awareness uh, both from the government and from the, the normal people has, uh, has been increased. You know, if uh, we take just uh, some big numbers, uh, healthcare sector only accounts for around 6% of China GDP, which comparing to, you know, Europe and Japan level of 10% of GDP, and U.S. is the, the, the highest as uh, 17%. So uh, clearly, you know, China has been under investing in this sector, but then, um, you know, going forward, there will be more investment. Um, and uh, the second trend I would say is that I, I think there will be more um, investment in hospitals, especially for the primary hospitals and uh, also for the ICUs. At the initial stage, uh, the mortality rate at uh, Wuhan has been very high because there's no in, not enough ICU beds to save people. There are some, just uh, some um, anecdotes that I hear from companies that in China, probably only 5% of the hospital beds are uh, designated for ICU, but then in developed countries, this number is 15%. So China is still underserved for, for the ICU beds. So there will be more investment in this. Uh, the thirdly is, um, I think there will be more supportive uh, policies for the online healthcare both for the consultation and for the drug uh, prescription. Because a uh, hospital has been suspended and then people need to turn online and then people mm. themselves don't want to go to hospitals to increase the infection risk. And we see a strong growth, both the number of users and the you know, number of visits. And then um, it seems that the trend is continuing. So consumer behavior has, uh, has been changed from, from this pandemic. Yeah, people started to trust the, the online. Uh, healthcare consultation.
Investment analyst Yuan Lin Lang there forecasting a structural shift towards online medical services in China as a result of the pandemic. Now, clearly, contact tracing and, and artificial intelligence has also played a, a significant role in the Chinese government's ability to track, control and stem the spread of the virus there. And, you know, Tina, as, as Raymond touched on, you know, this access to these vast swathes of personal data is clearly critical for such systems to work. And, you know, it is an issue which causes a lot of consternation in Europe and the US, but, but clearly that doesn't seem to be true to the same extent in China. Why is this? So there's a sense of um, collectivism. So I guess the individualism is less pronounced in China um, for the good of the group or, you know, for the team, for the country. People don't feel that, you know, your individual kind of data privacy is, is the, the most important thing. Um, secondly, I guess as Raymond just mentioned, people are willing to give away data in return of for convenience. And, and third, thirdly, just based on my personal experience, I, I think, you know, if you look at China, there's a very high population density and also there are limited resources, right? So when you have very high population density, you have a lot of people living, working together, that just means less room for privacy. So I guess people kind of get used to it and not really feeling that's a big problem. And, and clearly we've talked about 5G, but this whole area of um, artificial intelligence just feels like a, a really you know, important development for, uh, for China. Uh, Johnny, maybe coming to you first, how can you see this translation of big data into artificial intelligence being important for kind of China's future development? I think artificial intelligence and specifically deep learning is an area where China is going to be the leader. And, and, and the background is for, for deep learning, you need two things. One, sophisticated algorithms, and two, data which you use to train up neural networks, computers which work like the human brain. The data algorithms are actually largely open source. It's academic research. Everyone can do that. But the scarcity value is in the data. And if you look at um, the West, there's a culture of individual liberty and data privacy, in contrast to China's ideals of collectivism. Um, and there is also an antagonistic relationship between the government and government and the regulators and the internet giants at the cutting edge of the data revolution. So Google and Facebook and Amazon have all had big run-ins. That's completely different in China. You do not have the conflict. The government trusts the, 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 the internet giants, Alibaba, Tencent, the super apps. And also these companies have ready access to the use of the data they, can, they need to drive cutting-edge research and cutting-edge applications. So you see that, you know, compared to the West, China is starting 10 yards ahead. China is starting at a structural advantage because Chinese companies have access to the data and they have their go-ahead to use that data. American companies have neither. Raymond, turning to you, I mean, how quickly do you expect China to progress in this whole area of artificial intelligence? If we look at uh, this uh, common things, AI or big data, big data is foundation, just like a mine. Then we have the AI or this is a kind of algorithm. But for algorithm, what's important is engineers. The thing is, different industries need different algorithms and different algorithms will need different engineers. But in China, there are a large number of potential engineers coming to the market every year with 8.7 million graduates from universities. And this huge amount of potential supply of engineers, their monthly salary, possibly talking about 500 to 600 euros. This compare 
to the Western standard is, is cheap, cheap resources. So I believe with big data there and with so many engineers there, the AI as a kind of application in different industries with the help of the 5G network, the progress will be pretty good. But what's the disadvantage or what China so far they still don't have or they still cannot control is computing power. So between data and algorithm, you need computing power. And this computing power is an area that China is still weak on. So one of the things that I think is also really interesting when it comes to thinking about China and its use of artificial intelligence is that this is an economy which historically has been based on activities which rely on the provision of relatively low-cost labor. But we're, we're today in a position where you have um, those labor costs rising, you've got uh, Chinese population uh, aging. But do you see, Tina, the use of artificial intelligence and technology being able to address and optimize some of these kind of labor-intensive processes? Absolutely. So we're seeing a lot of uh, traditional companies in China really adopting AI and automation to, to optimize the process and improve the efficiency. Maybe some examples here, you know, construction industry is probably one of the most traditional industry in the world, right? So the labor element is, is very important here. Um, so apparently because of you know rising labor cost, aging population, that becomes an issue. So now we're actually seeing you know construction companies in China, they are using software sensors to really help the process. So they can, with the help of sensors, cameras and, and software, they can actually you know automatically count the people on, on the work, um, check the attendance, and even to check whether they are wearing the safety helmets on the construction sites. And they can they can count the, the rebar, the, the cement automatically, which has to be done by, by people in the past, right? Some other examples could be, you know, for online education. So we have a lot of kids having the learning from online. And you have the camera, which is a, a smart camera, which can actually analyze the kids' expression. Right, whether the, the kids are confused, they don't understand certain question problem sets, you need some extra explanation. So that really improves the efficiency of learning. Now, we heard uh, Yuan Lin speak earlier about the speed of progress in healthcare being spurred by government policies. But another industry that's able to boast uh, official support is the automotive sector, where innovation in electric vehicles and autonomous driving is really gathering pace. Investment Director Catherine Young spoke on the phone to Fidelity's China Autos Analyst Sherry Chin to ask her about the country's advances in that sector. The auto segment in China certainly was impacted by the lockdown. But as we spoke to management teams, some were talking about the fact that we could still see consumers buy. So the notion of pent up demand after restrictions were eased, not to mention key beneficiaries of the segment relating to their strong brands. Now, Sherry, one such name does spring to mind, and I, I imagine it's the same name that you're thinking about. Can you tell me a little bit about Tesla, please? Tesla has delivered over 10,000 of units in March, which is quite a surprise to the market. I think on the one, on the one hand, uh, there is an effective of restocking of production. And on the other hand, that the product of Model 3 is truly competitive 
So yeah, we we can definitely see the strong demand and growth continue in April. So Tesla's success there in China is it really about price, or is there something more to the story? Yes, definitely. I think on the one hand, Tesla got competitive products, but on the other hand, that China is the biggest EV market in the world. It consumes half of the global EV, almost one to one point three million units this year. And regards support from the government, for example, after the coronavirus, the government has been quite supportive in restarting the production, and a lot of local governments are offering the free car plates for the EV models. Because if you think about the normal cars, it's a long queue for people to get a car plate, which is quite expensive. But in the EV models, we are essentially receiving the car plate for free. And in the past few years, Chinese government has been offering a lot of financial support, including subsidies to the EV. Although the subsidies has been cut quite aggressively recently, but I think those、uh, subsidy support is still quite lucrative as an individual buyers. In your view, how are we seeing the Chinese AI and tech companies shaping up in terms of the competitive landscape? I mean, the team recently saw and test drove Pony Dot AI's fleet of cars, autonomous driving cars. You know, there's still a big gap in terms of、um, innovation and price. Personally, I'm a strong believer of autonomous vehicle. Although it's a very young business, so the industry doesn't really have a very systematic evaluation and ranking of the companies. But based on the test data, vehicle numbers, and also driving range, we do see that the Chinese companies are improving quite fast. Like Baidu, AutoX, and Pony AI, those guys are catching up really fast. And the core of autonomous driving, in my view, it's really the algorithm. So we are quite positive about the companies who are truly technology driven. So, given all this, Sherry, how is China positioned in terms of its infrastructure for an electric and autonomous driving future? There are 1.3 million charging poles in China, of which over 700,000 are private, and over 500,000 is public charging poles. Most of them are located in the coastal provinces like、uh, Jiangsu. Guangdong, Shanghai, and Beijing. As for the autonomous driving infrastructure,、uh, I think it's probably a little bit early, but I think in the long term, the 5G system will definitely help the autonomous vehicles because that can improve safety by providing additional sensor signal input for the autonomous driving system. So I think I'm quite positive in a Chinese government's input into both EV and autonomous vehicle. And、uh, one one more thing I want to、uh, mention is that the Chinese consumers are more open to try new things, especially the technology area. For example, the online shopping O2O and Livestream, those are quite popular in China. I think it's it's a good environment to encourage. Uh, innovation among the autos and other electronics、uh, consumer goods. Catherine Young there talking to Sherry Chin. So China might not be the leader in autonomous driving, but it could be the first place in the world where the technology is used at scale. The ability to mandate overnight what happens on the roads, as well as having a sizable population, which, as Sherry points out, is comfortable with testing new technologies, makes a big difference. 
Raymond, can you give us a sense of that scale? Yeah, China's EV sales right now is one of the highest in the world. So potentially, this growth of EV will be huge, talking about millions per year. But the, the positive thing is for the autonomous driving, especially in Guangzhou, uh, the government is pretty much supportive on this. They designed it a, a certain area for the autonomous driving test. The progress also pretty fast. And the, the potential is is pretty high. I just want to add, I think, um, for autonomous driving, it plays to China's strengths in the chip-making industry as well. Raymond touched on before that China doesn't have as strong compute general purpose chips, but they're very good at building very specific AI chips for, for, for one particular task. And building chips for autonomous driving is, is a perfect example of this. It plays to all of China's strengths. They have all the data. They have inexpensive design engineers. And, and they have the regular go-ahead to, 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 to build and, and use these chips in the field. Um, so I think this is one area where China's hardware advantage it will also help them versus Western companies. Now, one of, the, one of the phrases that I often think about when someone mentions uh, autonomous driving is smart cities. And of course, you know, smart cities sounds uh, like something that is a, uh, a kind of a long-term uh, aspiration. But, but maybe, Tina, I could ask you, how far are we from seeing smart cities in China and, and what kind of enables smart cities to function? We are in the early stage of smart city development. Um, we're actually seeing a lot of, um, I mean, the key internet giants working with local governments closely to improve the smartness of cities. So a couple of examples here. One is Alibaba works with uh, Zhejiang province to have this uh, called City Brain Project. So basically, the, there's a centralized system which controls all the traffic lights in a city, which means when, when there's an accident you know, happening somewhere, it, the, the system can help the first re respondents to reach those emergency signs very quickly. And the system can also optimize the traffic light waiting time and shortens the commutes for, for everybody. Um, another example is um, we have Tencent working with Yunnan province in developing this um, all-in-one sort of tourist app to guide people touring around the, the province. So you can have all the tourism-related requests being addressed in that one app, be it finding the direction to um, tourist sites, finding the best restaurants, you know, even telling you what is the, the flower or tree beside you, what are they good for, you know, stuff like that. So I, I actually think we are in the early stage uh, of that development, but we're actually progressing quite fast. We've talked a lot about the technological developments in China. We've talked about it a lot in the context of the Chinese economy. But a subject that I, I'm really interested in, and, and you know, you'll have to forgive me because I'm always thinking like a, you know, as, as an investor, is what is the scope for Chinese technology businesses and China, Chinese technology leadership to play a role on the global stage. You know, if I look at sort of what has been coming back to Johnny's comments at the beginning, as we have seen technology leaders in history playing those important roles globally, whether we think about US or, you know, in, in more recent decades um, about Japan, what's the opportunity that, that China has to play a role internationally uh, when it comes to technology? Raymond, happy to start with you. Yeah, I will give you an example of a company called TikTok. 
TikTok actually is uh, from China and uh, basically is a kind of short video application. But actually the company itself is not kind of news company or entertainment company, but rather I would say it's a kind of AI company. So for AI, it can not only uh, have very high growth in China, and right now also have very high growth overseas in, in the world as well. So this is the area we can put into the category. So for the right AI application, possibly they can go to the world very quickly. But for some other areas, I will say like infrastructure, it will still have a quite far distance from there. And I mean, Raymond, that's such a, an interesting example because, you know, Johnny, you touched earlier on the... I guess some of the complexities around uh, international, whether it's sort of governments or companies, you know, onboarding Chinese technology. Do you, do you see that changing as we go through the next the next decade? I mean, the thing I wonder about is, you know, we kind of assume at the moment, will it be China more influential on the global stage or the US more the West more influential on the global stage? If we take the deglobalization we've seen to the logical extreme. Could we actually have more separate and more parallel technology ecosystems over the next 10 years? Um, so at the moment, you, you cross the border to China, your phone works. What if 5G or 6G phones, had, there's, there's China 6G and there's Western 6G. Um, there's China processors and Western processors. There's China internets and Western internets. And I kind of feel we've had the benefit of globalization and a common infrastructure for the last 10 years. If we have more separate and parallel infrastructures, that will mean the overall pie is smaller. But within the two ecosystems, you could probably do more powerful and radical things, which you, which you couldn't do in a global structure, which you know may grow certain areas. Um, so that's the question I'm kind of pondering over is that how much do we see separate ecosystems and separate technology platforms and separate technology standards and ultimately set more, more separate technology companies and, and, and profit pools versus the, the, the global pools we see at the moment. That's an excellent point. Maybe, Tina, just to finish with you, I mean, outside of TikTok, if you had to sort of think about brands that could be internationally recognizable three, five years from now, what, what, what else could people be, be becoming aware of uh, as, as global investors? Yeah, so, so a few examples I, I can think of as one is um, Tencent's games. So actually, you know, Tencent is the biggest game developer in China. And different from the rest of the world in China, the mobile games have been really popular. And actually, we are seeing this shift globally from sort of PC console games to mobile games. So Tencent actually benefits from, from this shift, whereby they can use their, apply their mobile development capability in helping a lot of global partners to convert the PC IP to mobile games. So we're actually seeing, you know, um, Tencent working with um, partners to to launch like Call of Duty, you know, PUBG, all those very popular games overseas. Um, another example I would think of is um, Ant Financial, very strong fintech player in China, and they are applying their payment know-how and capability when they work with a lot of partners in the rest of Asia to develop those kind of digital wallet and to enhance the experience, etc. So it really sounds as if we are, for a number of different reasons, seeing China very much emerge at the forefront of leadership when it comes to cutting edge technologies, whether we think about 5G or artificial intelligence. 
And there are clearly going to be some of these uh, brands that will be recognized uh, globally, whether that's, uh, you know, TikTok or, or potentially Ant Financial. But I think Johnny makes a really interesting point, which is that perhaps as we kind of look forward, we should think about their existing sort of multiple different sort of technological ecosystems rather than just one, one single ecosystem. So with that, let me thank my guests today, uh, Raymond Ma and Tina Tian uh, from Hong Kong and uh, Johnny Sang for, for dialing in from London. That was an excellent conversation. Thank you so much indeed uh, for your insights. And let me also extend a thanks to Yuan Lin Lang and Sherry Chin. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you've heard, then please rate and review us on your podcast app. And if you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website. The producers today were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher in London and Tommy Sue in Hong Kong. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.